Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us your Holy Spirit, and for giving us Jesus, that we might have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that as we gather together, as we um, look at what you have done for us, as we consider the witness that you gave of who Jesus is, that we too um, would raise our voices in love and praise for Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who is our Master, who is the one that we identify with and the one whom we follow. So I would pray that you would just enlighten us now by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand these things and that um, in understanding that we might have belief, true belief, that works itself out in us through obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you seen the TV show? A couple of times I might have watched TV. (laughs) The uh, TV show about undercover boss. (laughs) And the uh, CEO or the boss, the big, the big cheese, disguises himself or herself as one of the employees and kind of works at the, the ground level and sees how things are really going in the company, in the, you know, maybe it's a, a fast food place, a restaurant, or maybe it's um, some sort of service industry um, kind of job. But they go undercover so that they can see really how things are going and um, it can get quite wild. One of the episodes, one of the employees is kind of being watched by his undercover boss, who he doesn't know is his boss because it's a big company, and so he doesn't, and they get disguised, and they wear a wig, and, you know, they, they don't look like what they look like in their, you know, annual general minute report, and um, so anyway, he's having, um, he's doing some work alongside this guy, his boss, and his boss does something wrong. And the guy fires his boss. <laughs> and his boss says to him, you're firing me? And he said, yes, you're out of here. And he says, but for that? <laughs> and it's funny because we know that the real authority, of course, lies with the CEO. And um, knowing who he is, and if that guy that worker had known that this was the CEO he was talking to, he would have never said what he said because, of course, he didn't have the authority to fire the CEO. So, um, but it's kind of funny because it's about um, who are you? I don't know if you've ever been asked that when you've done something and somebody says to you, well, who do you think you are to do that? And it's really about authority. It's about what authority that we have. And so we're going to be looking really um, not just at the authority, but who people were saying 
that Jesus is because this is something that they had to learn. It wasn't something that they just automatically knew. And for us, that's, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus has come, you know, people know who Jesus is. They may not follow him. They may not believe in him. They may not acknowledge um, all the things that he is. But when you talk about Jesus Christ, it's not this like, oh, I've never heard that name before for most of us. And so um, these people, though, had to learn about who Jesus was. And the Gospels were written for that purpose. And we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John this morning, um, which would be uh, these, these uh, scriptures, John 1, 29 to 51. We're kind of moving around in the different Gospels, but this time it's in John. And what we're looking at, um, John, if you recall, the first three um, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the Synoptic Gospels. And they were written earlier on, and they were written about the life of Jesus, and um, there's a lot of the happenings. John wrote quite a bit later, even, um, you know, we think probably 30 years later after the other Gospels were written, because he saw still a need, and of course was... um, directed by the Holy Spirit to write about exactly who is Jesus. And so John's gospel is a little bit different than the other three in the sense of his focus is about teaching us who Jesus Christ is. And um, his, uh, he gives um, the purpose of his gospel, is actually he says it right in chapter 20, he says that you may believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, and that in believing in him, you may have life in him. And so um, John tells us what the purpose of his writing is. So then as we read through the Gospel of John, we want to make sure that we have got um, that kind of in our mind as we are thinking about the things that John says to us. So if you want to turn to those scriptures, if you have a Bible or have it on your phone, just do not use your phone for your emails right now. <laughs> well, you can if you want to. There's no police around here. So, but 29 is where we're starting. And we're jumping into a story. So John, as I said, doesn't repeat everything that the other Gospels have said. And so when we jump into verse 29, Jesus has already been baptized by now. So the day before, actually, of this, of him writing this particular verse, or talking about this verse. And so Jesus has already been baptized. And there's some things that happened in Jesus' baptism that John was a witness to. And we're going to look at, so we have a lot of testimonies in these verses. That's what we're looking at, is the testimony of these different people and who they said, who they learned that Jesus was, and who they made testimony of. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And so uh, John's testimony, John, John the Baptist, I should say, John the Baptist's testimony comes first. So it says in uh, verse 29, the next day, so that's the day after Jesus was baptized, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So John 
the Baptist says about himself, I came baptizing in water so that you might recognize um, as him being manifested to Israel. And John, meaning John the Baptist, bore witness saying, I have beheld, and this is the testimony we want to look at first, not, not because of the order, but because of um, the importance of what the Spirit and the Father say and do. Um, and he says, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he, meaning the Spirit, remained upon him, meaning Jesus. And I did not recognize him, meaning Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So if you recall, John the Baptist, and we talked about him last week, he was raised up by God as being the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who prepared the way of the Lord. And so he was doing these water baptisms, which we call the baptism of repentance, proclaiming that Jesus was coming. And he was told by the Holy Spirit that he would know who the Christ was because a dove in physical form would descend and rest upon the one who was the Messiah. And so he knew um, what to be looking for. He knew what the sign would be. And so when he baptized Jesus the day before this event here, um, he's, he baptized Jesus, and when Jesus came up, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and there was a voice from heaven, the voice of Father God, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so um, both gave witness, the Holy Spirit and the Father gave witness at the time of the baptism um, that this was Jesus, the Son of God. And so we have really um, the Father's um, testimony. And here in this scripture, the testimony of the Father is, uh, he said to John the Baptist, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so that's the Father's testimony, is the one whom you see is the Son of God. He's the one. And so that's the one whom you've been preparing the way for, because even though John the Baptist knew Jesus in a, um, a familial way, he did not know who Jesus, the Son of God, was. And so he needed this sign from the Father, and the Father said, you'll, you'll get the sign when it's time, and sure enough, he did. And look what he says. He says that he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John says clearly about himself, I baptize in water, which is the baptism of repentance. But the one who is coming, who was before me, he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So one is the baptism of repentance. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the baptism of regeneration. And only Jesus can do that one. And so um, John gives testimony to that, and he gives testimony to what the Father had said to him. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit came down and descended upon him, Jesus, and remained upon him in the physical form of a dove. And so um, that was the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that this indeed was the Son of God. 
And so really, we have right here, and I always like to pick up on the scriptures where it talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together. I like to pick up on those ones because really it's um, explicit teaching. It's telling us exactly what the Father said, what the Holy Spirit said, who the Son of God is in this case, Jesus, um, you know, what happened with Jesus. So we see the three together. And when we see the three together, it's in scripture as an implicit teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll hear people say, well, it never talks about the Trinity in the Bible. But in fact, although it doesn't explicitly use that term, because that's a term that we have, um, it does implicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when, you know, people come to your door, because they will, and they will say, there's nothing that says anything about the Trinity. They're not all God. You can go to a passage like this and say, here are all three, and all three are the eternal ones, So um, and are one. So that is the doctrine of the Trinity right there for us. But uh, John also says um, in verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, John the Baptist said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. Remember Jesus said about John the Baptist that he was the greatest of all the prophets? And here is the greatest of all the prophets saying, one who has a higher rank than I. And that one is um, because he says, for he existed before me. So he existed before me. He's preeminent. He's the preexistent one. And so John the Baptist gives um, testimony not only that um, Jesus has been born and has come, you know, and he goes on to talk about other things and we learn other things about him being our Savior, but John the Baptist is making it really clear that Jesus is the pre-existent one, that he existed before all time, that he, um, John the Baptist physically was born before Jesus. He's older than Jesus physically, but Jesus pre-existed him. And John clearly says that. And so we see that he is the creator of the universe because in the chapter right before this, um, in the Gospel of John, John the Apostle says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. So um, it's, you know, John the Baptist picks up on that and tells us of the preexistence of Jesus Christ. So we have the testimony of them. But let's keep moving through verse 35. And uh, we see here the next day. Now John the Baptist again. Again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. So he also had followers who followed after him. And he looked upon Jesus. John the Baptist looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so... Um, this is a very interesting term, this Lamb of God, because this wasn't something that they used. Um, so many of these words are familiar to us because we live in you know, the New Testament times. But in the Old Testament times, they didn't use these kinds of terms. They had a lamb as a sacrifice, but they didn't really talk about the Lamb of God. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make for the most part. You know, some kind of got it, but mostly they didn't. And so for John to pick up on this and to say, behold the Lamb of God, I think that they would be thinking a couple of things. One is, they'd be thinking of Passover. And Passover was the feast in the spring, and, and we know that Jesus died at um, the Passover time. 
but passover to them was remembering coming out of egypt and being taken out of slavery and being brought into the promised land that's what would trigger for them and the celebration of passover was the time of unleavened bread where they would get rid of all the leaven which represented sin they would get leaven out of the camp out of their house and it would be gone but they also would bring this little lamb this sweet little innocent and they would bring that little lamb as this little lamb comes walking up here <laughs> they would this is deacon <laughs> they would bring this little lamb no i don't want to say it um for the sacrifice <laughs> I always say, I don't teach Bible studies with babies because they're way too distracting. <laughs> so they would bring this little lamb, and the little lamb, every family had to bring a lamb to be sacrificed. So this lamb is what they would be thinking of, the, the Pascal lamb, and this lamb would be brought as a sacrifice for that family. So this lamb was for this family. This family had to get their own lamb, and that family had to get their own lamb. So at Passover time, there were a lot of lambs because everybody came to Jerusalem. You weren't allowed to sacrifice somewhere else. It had to be at the temple. So everybody came to Jerusalem to sacrifice this lamb, which is why it was so crazy at Passover time with all these people that were travelers that had come as pilgrims and had brought their lamb, or you know, all the lambs that were there to be sold to be used for the sacrifice. And so um, that's what they would be thinking. Or they might have been thinking, because the scriptures talk about, um, like we call a baby goat a kid, but they would call a baby goat a lamb as well. And at the, on the Day of Atonement, they would also sacrifice a lamb in you know, what we would call a goat. And one would be, there would be two. One was sacrificed, and the other one, um, the priest, the high priest, would lay his hands on this, what we call the scapegoat, or what was called in scripture the scapegoat. He would transfer, basically, he would put on this goat the sin of the nation of Israel, and then send it out into the wilderness to Rome until it died. And so the idea was taking the sin out of the camp, away from the nation. And so the Day of Atonement was the other time when they would have the sacrifice of the lamb, but it would be for the sacrifice for the nation. And here's the distinction, because John the Baptist, he doesn't say, here is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for your family, or here is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. He said, here is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice for the entire world. And because he's just made a point of him being the preexistent one, he's saying not just for right now, for the whole world, but the world that has already come and died, all the people who have died before, the time right now, and the time that we fit in, the future, to John the Baptist. So Jesus Christ has died for the whole world, past, present, and future. And so this is hugely distinctive from the other sacrifices. They are uh, pointing forward, and it shows the scope of Jesus' sacrifice so much more than what had been written about before. And so that is really what, what uh, John is saying. So he is saying 
behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin the entire sin of the world not just the sins but the sin of the world so um he also says in verse 34 and i have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of god so the third person of the trinity we've had the testimony of the father and of the Holy Spirit, and here John is testifying this is the third person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And he doesn't just say a Son of God, that would be something else that people say when they come knocking at your door, and they will say, oh, well, we are all sons of God, um, you know, who truly believe. Well, in a sense, yes, that's right, but there's only one who is the, capital S, Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. We are adopted in we are given um, an inheritance as sons of god but we are not the son of god only jesus christ is the son of god and john um, makes a point of that and gives testimony to that well then we move on to these two disciples that were following after him and we look at um, verses 37 i'm going to read down to 42 and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed jesus and Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, so that's John the Baptist speak, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of these two was Andrew. We think that the other one is the Apostle John, but it doesn't actually say that anywhere. It's just implied in the Gospel. Um, he found first his own brother, Simon. So Andrew went back and found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So there's a lot in those few verses. And um, really what we're looking at is Andrew's witness that this is the Messiah, and which is the uh, Hebrew term. And the um, Greek term is Christ, which is why it has this translated, because um, the New Testament is using um, the Septuagint, which is written, in, it's the Old Testament written in Greek, and so it, it tells us both. And so um, it means the anointed one. So the Christ, the Messiah, means the anointed one. Now they had anointing in the Old Testament. God taught them to anoint. So they anointed, uh, for sure, they anointed the priest, like the high priest, was anointed as the high priest, so um, particularly set apart. The one that this office was going to be upon was the high priest, so it started with Aaron, and you know it kept on in Aaron's line all the way down, um, even to Jesus' day. And uh, the second one that they would anoint would be the kings. So the king would be anointed, and and the king is going to be you know the ruler of of uh, you know whatever uh, country or whatever that they were going to do. So in the Old Testament, it would be the king of Israel and the king of Judah because it was a split kingdom. And so the king would be anointed. And then the third one that would be anointed is the prophet. And quite often 
that anointing um, really was God, where he consecrated them, where he set them apart for this particular prophet ministry. And so in the Old Testament, those who were anointed were the king, the priest, and the prophet. And they're all foreshadowing the great king, priest, and prophet, because Jesus is the anointed one. He is the great prophet of God, as well as fulfilling prophecy. He's the one who gives us so much of our prophetical teaching about the time of the end. Um, so he's a prophet of God. He is our great high priest. And in the book of Hebrews, it really clearly teaches how he is our great high priest, how he fulfills all of the priestly order in the order of um, Melchizedek rather than in the order of Aaron. And um, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We learn that in Revelation 19, that he is the one who will come and he will be king above all earthly kings and he will be the Lord above all earthly lords. So in every way, he is the great one. And um, it's no small thing, this thing about the Messiah. And really, in understanding the Messiah the one who comes, the anointed one, it really is the key to the whole body of the Old Testament scriptures, to understanding that. It's not a small thing to declare that he is the Messiah. And so Andrew is the one who declares um, and says, we have found the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for. The next one comes from Philip. So um, if you want to look at verses 43 to 46, the next day, he, meaning Jesus, purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So Andrew and Peter originally were from that city, Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found, and here it is, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So th there's a lot just in that statement. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So I just want to unpack that a little bit and, and you know, try and dig into why um, Nathanael responded that way to Philip. But Philip saw these things, and he testified right away to his friend, which I think is a, a great... Um, reminder to all of us that you, you see these guys they seem to know each other they're from the same hometown they're the brother they're the friend um, you know the close buddy and so we see a pattern of going and telling the people that are closest to you about who Jesus is and that's exactly what we're seeing here with the calling of these uh, disciples so when Philip, um, who was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, so it's making the point that he probably knew Andrew and Peter, and he's the next one to hear, um, <clears throat> when he uh, followed and he went and got his buddy, Nathaniel, and we always see these two kind of together, so they must be uh, close friends. And so um, he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So in other words, and Jesus even said this himself about himself, that all of the law, which is the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, all of the law and all of the prophets, right, who are, you know, anyone who writes scripture is called a prophet, those 
the law and the prophets, those that he, the one that he wrote about, that they wrote about, he is the one. And so um, Philip is saying, you know, the one that we've been looking for, and then he goes on to say, Jesus of Nazareth, yikes, the son of Joseph. So the son of Joseph is um, very key because the son of Joseph is the one who's in the kingly line because Joseph was a direct descendant of not only David but also of Solomon. And so the kingly line went right through. And if you look at Joseph's lineage, you read all these different kings that were kings of Judah back in the Old Testament. They make up the lineage of Joseph right up to that day. And so Jesus is, is able to receive the earthly title of the king of Israel. He's king of the universe, but he's also able to receive as the son of Joseph, as the adopted son of Joseph, that kingly title of Israel. And so that's why um, Philip is making the point to Nathaniel, he is um, the son of Joseph. But he also says another one. He says Jesus of Nazareth, which is no big deal at all. And for these people, just to understand the background of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth is not a great place to be from if you're a Jew. Nazareth is um, very occupied by the Gentiles. And the people that live in Nazareth and um, in you know, the Galilean area, those people were considered to have really um, mixed up their religion, the, the Jewish religion, with all the other religions of the Gentiles. And they weren't, quote, as pure as the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. And so it was a snub to call somebody from Nazareth. And um, they would be really clear. So for Philip to say, Jesus of Nazareth, he's making a pretty big point. And so because he says it in the context of him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, then we have to see, well, what did Moses and the prophets write about Nazareth? What is so such a big deal? And in order to see that, we need to turn to Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, what it's talking about here, Zebulun and Naphtali are uh, northern tribes of Israel. So they're, they're the tribal areas that are up in the north. And in Zebulun is Nazareth. And in Naphtali is Capernaum. Now we're interested in Nazareth today, but um, you often will see these two together. And um, Capernaum, of course, is where Jesus settled for a good period of time and where they settled and had you know, a large part of their ministry. But... Um, Nazareth is where he came from. And so um, the, these areas are going to be the first areas to be taken captive by the Assyrians. In other words, they were super sinful. And they were attacked and conquered by the Assyrians. And the rest of uh, the Jewish nation knows this and kind of they snub their nose at Nazareth and um, Capernaum and, you know, more um, largely. Zebulun and Naphtali, and they were treated with contempt 
um, even by God who allowed the Assyrians to come in and conquer them. But it says later on, he, meaning God, shall make it glorious. So God, even though he judged them, he's going to raise them up at the end. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, so specifically named. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Who is that great light? It's Jesus Christ. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And the bulk of Jesus' ministry was there. It was down in Jerusalem as well, but it was in these dark areas. And um, it says, Thou shalt increase their glad, they sh- thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, this is for all of us. The rod of our oppressors is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so that wonderful passage from Isaiah, which really I think Philip is probably referring to when he says, you know, he's written about in the prophets. Here it is. He is the one of whom this is written and that his government will extend not only in breadth, but in eternity, that he will always reign and rule when he establishes his um, reign of peace. And so this was a huge thing when um, Philip is saying he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's bringing all these scriptures back into play, and there's so many more that, that we could look at, but... We don't have time to do that today, but that hopefully helps us to see that it's not just sort of like, oh, that's where he you know, came from. It's like it's fulfilling prophecy is what Philip is saying. And Nathaniel comes. Of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from um, Galilee or from Nazareth? This is impossible. And so um, we're going to see what Nathaniel learns because he's our next guy. So Nathaniel, verses um, 46, and uh, we'll read down to um, 47. And Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Now, I know that we've read that passage before and wondered, what did Jesus mean? He doesn't have any, like, guile means um, deception. So is he saying that he doesn't have any sin? Well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's no deception in you. And remember, John is a, is a gospel of contrast. So he contrasts uh, Peter with Judas throughout the gospel. 
he contrasts light with darkness he contrasts the truth with um, the false teachers and so here we see again this contrast that's brought out and that is Jesus is saying here's an Israelite with no guile because Jesus is dealing constantly with the Pharisees who are full of deceit pretending to be something that they're not and he says of Nathaniel he's not trying to pretend to be anything he's a true Israelite in other words, he, be, he actually believes the scriptures, unlike the Pharisees who use them as a tool to wield power over other people. Nathaniel was an honest truth seeker. And so when Nathaniel receives the truth, he believes the truth. In other words, Nathaniel has a heart that's prepared to hear the word of God. And so the question for us is, what's your heart like? Have you got a heart that's prepared to hear the truth? Or when you hear the truth, is it like, ah, oh, yeah, no, no, this is what I think. And we don't have a heart that's prepared. We have a heart that's hard. And the more we do that, the harder our heart gets. But Jesus says of Nathaniel, here is a true Israelite, in one that has no guile. He's not deceiving anyone, and he's not being deceived. And so when he's confronted with Jesus, listen to what he says. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Like, how do you know this about me? Like, how do you know that I don't have any guile? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What an incredible response to something so simple of what Jesus had said. And um, Jesus picks up on that. But I, first of all, I want to just look, before we look at what Jesus responds, at what that meant when Nathaniel said that. So his testimony is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Because um, when Jesus said to him, the fig tree... Now, we just read that, and we think, oh, yeah, he was just sitting under a fig tree. And we take that very literally, and we should take that literally, because that's probably exactly where he was sitting. But Jesus means more by pointing that out. He didn't say other things that would have been around him. He pointed out the fact that Nathaniel was sitting underneath this fig tree. And the fig tree is very important in understanding a lot of the things that are said in the Old Testament, both about... Um, you know, in the old, but also pointing to the new kingdom that is, has come and is coming. So the fig tree is really used by God as a picture of abundance, of fruitfulness, a place of peace. And, um, but it's also another thing. So when God talks about the fig tree, he's really talking about covenant because they didn't really have control over um, what their abundance was, it was a result of the blessing of God or he, his withheld blessing, and they wouldn't have. So he's really um, talking about it as a symbol of the covenantal relationship that God has with Israel in particular. And, um, but it's also bigger because it also is a reference to the fall because what did Adam and Eve do when they realized that they had sinned and God came looking for them in the garden what did they do 
What tree did they pick the leaves off of? The fig tree. And they tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves. They tried to fix the problem themselves, but they could not. They could not hide their guilt. And so it's a reference to not only God's covenant relationship, that he would bless Israel, that he would bless us as we are grafted into the nation of Israel, but he also is referring to the fall of man. There's nothing that we can do to fix this problem ourselves. And so when Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, where they would often go to study in the heat of Israel, when it was a hot day, they would sit under the shade of a fig tree. Jesus is saying, it's all these symbols he's bringing back into this man who knows his scripture. And when the Lord says this to him, he understands what God is saying, what Jesus is saying. And uh, when it says, I saw you, it's the word Ido there, and it's to know you. It wasn't just, you know, I saw you physically. It's like I knew you. I knew you because you are a true son of Israel and you are under the shade of the fig tree. In other words, you are under the blessing of God because your heart is a true heart and your heart is a prepared heart. And the Lord is not looking to shake and wag his finger at people. He's looking for those with a true heart who follow after him. And what is your heart like? Is it a true heart? that loves to hear his truth, that responds to his truth, that is eager to adopt his truth? Are we like Nathaniel? Because that's what Nathaniel was like, and Jesus saw it. And Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He just put it all together. And um, he goes, um, we go on to hear what Jesus says. So Jesus goes on to say to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And listen to what he says that he's going to see. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now remember, Nathaniel knows his scripture. So right away, this reference of the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, right away he would be thinking Jacob's ladder, the ladder that he had in his vision. And when he was, um, had this vision, Jacob saw angels ascending and descending out of heaven, which is representative of the mediation of Jesus Christ between God and man. And so we see this symbol of the representation. And Nathaniel's being told, you're going to see that. You're going to see and understand that the angels ascending and descending were really pointing to the one who would be the mediator between God and man. And so, um, and he says, that's going to be even greater. You're going to see the heavens opened, and you're going to see that. And so Jesus really is making reference um, to his return here and the rescue of, of mankind. So the last verse again, where Jesus says about himself, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Have you ever wondered why sometimes we call him the Son of God and sometimes the Son of Man? 
And, you know, is there a difference between these two, and, and why is this? Mostly we see it's Jesus who calls, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And it's a direct reference to um, the book of Daniel, to the prophecy of Daniel. So if you want to go to Daniel chapter 7, at this last prophecy that we're going to really look at, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 Um, in Daniel's vision I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven and we see that again referred to in John one like a son of man coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him to the son of man was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him and that's um a repeated phrase, what I just read in scripture, that means it's all-inclusive, all people. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's saying, I'm the one who's going to fulfill this. This kingdom is my kingdom, and this is the kingdom that I am bringing in. So then we want to ask ourselves, Remember I said the purpose of John's writing is so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in knowing this, that we would believe. So there's an awful lot that John could have written about, but these are the ones that he picks up on. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did he pick up on these names of God? What was John trying to show us in this little segment with these different testimonies of who Jesus is, why these names for Jesus, why these references to who he is. And in asking this question, we start to stand back and see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture always, this is what we call the meta-narrative of the whole Bible. It's everything fits always into understanding this, the creation of man, the fall of man, or the creation period, the fall of man, redemption, and then restoration. That's actually the big picture. And so how does what John said fit into this big picture? And we see it really um, with these three. The creation is his name, the preexistent one, the son of God, that he is God who created all. The fall, the one of whom the um, Moses or the law and the prophets wrote. So all of the Old Testament is really focusing in on the problem of the fall of man and what was going to happen to man. How would this get resolved? How could anything good come out of this terribleness? And we see that's why the Old Testament seems to be so full of these awful stories. You read the book of Judges and it goes from one chapter to the next getting worse and worse and worse. And then you get into the book of the kings and you think oh well now we've got David so now it'll be good but then every subsequent king we have a few good ones in there but it just gets worse and worse and worse and we're left at the end of the Old Testament with prophecies but nothing seems to be resolved and how is it going to get resolved so the third one redemption and that's when John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets said behold the Lamb of God finally 
the resolution to the problem. It's no longer a distant future thing. Behold, he is here, the Lamb of God, the one who is going to rescue us from this sin. And so he points that out and he says, this is the Messiah. And then the fourth one, which is restoration. Being redeemed is fantastic, but to be restored is even better. And so to be restored, that he is the king of Israel, not just a king, but the king of Israel, the king of all kings. And he is the son of man. So going back to Daniel, the fulfillment that his is the dominion, that his is the glory, his is the power, and his is all authority. This is what John is trying to tell us. He's trying to open up our eyes to see the bigger picture, the bigger picture of who God is. And the question is, what is our response to that? Because each of them have a response. And we're going to see at other times, further on in the Gospels, not everybody responds positively. Not everybody says, yes, I believe. But these things are written so that we will believe. And so the question is, do I believe? Do I believe that he is the son of God, the preexistent one? If he is the creator, then he created me. And he created me to live according to his plan and believing in him who created me. It requires a response from me. Do I believe that, he, that man is sinful? Do I believe that I have a problem? Because if I don't think I have a problem, then I don't actually believe the scriptures. Because the scriptures clearly teach we all have a big problem. And that problem we call sin. But you can identify lots of things in your life, but more than anything, it's the sin of not really believing. It's the sin of not believing God in what he said and who he is. And we all have that problem. And so the question is, do you really believe that? Do you believe the scriptures? Because that's what John has put this here for. And then the third one is redemption. That he is the Lamb of God, that he is the Messiah. And the question is, do we really believe that he is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is the one of whom it was all written about, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then in knowing this and believing this, do we really believe that we are restored or that we are still living in this trouble that we can't seem to get out of? Restoration means we actually are restored in who Jesus is and who he intended us to be and who he's redeemed us to be that we are a restored people who are part of his kingdom, who are going to rejoice when he finally returns and sets up his kingdom here on earth and in heaven. So we, that really is um, why we learn these things about Jesus. It's not just so that we have this intellectual knowledge, but it requires from us a response to each one of his names that he gives. And he doesn't just give these names. He gives himself many other names that we learn. I want us to look at, um, to, to wrap this up, at Micah chapter 4, verse 5. And this is the question for us. 
and that Micah had. And it's actually, it comes right after the fig tree one. He says um, in verse 4, and each of them will sit under his vine, speaking of the new kingdom, and under his fig tree. Like we're going to be blessed with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's his battle name. And then listen to this. And this is us. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Are you there? Is that your testimony? Can you say that you will walk in the name of our God Jesus Christ forever and ever? That's the question that's put to us, and hopefully the response is positive. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do ask that we would respond to you um, the way that you have taught us, the way that you have shown us, and that we would have hearts that are prepared to hear and to believe the truth. And Lord, we pray that we might be believers, that we might be followers in every way, in all these different things that we talked about, that we might truly be yours and be followers of yours, that we would walk in the name of our God. So we would ask that you would help us to keep pondering on these things, that these um, words that you have given to us in your word do not escape us, that we don't just get so busy that we forget everything that we've um, been challenged with. Help us instead to ponder these things and to think about them and to have a life that's changed and dedicated to you, O Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. So I'd like you to stand. I'm just going to read out of Philippians. Because, uh, you know, really that is the response to, of ours in uh, chapter 2. And it's at, right after it was talking about um, that he had become man, emptied himself, and became in the form of man. But then it says, therefore, and this is after Jesus' resurrection, therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those are, who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you. Millerville Community Church is a non-denominational country-style church with a huge heart for God. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. It is our desire to direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all life, hope, and true transformation. So all are welcome. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.